We're in Luke chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible today, that's page 885. If you'd like to turn there and join us in Luke 24, starting in verse 36. Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were disbelieved for joy they were, and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them as far, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. We read a longer text this morning just so that we would get the context of the ascension. But if you look at Luke's gospel, there are only two verses about the ascension. Two verses about Jesus going back to the Father in the book of Luke. It's very short, very abrupt really, it seems, at the end of Luke. But the thing that I said to you This morning, as we came to our prayer time, is verse 52. Look what it says. Jesus, in Luke's text here, is blessing the disciples even as he goes and ascends. And then it says, they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. My question this morning, and I hope your question of the text is, why? Why was there such great joy in the disciples as Jesus leaves? They still didn't have it totally figured out. Um, It wasn't that long ago, 40 days only, since Jesus was crucified. But they were getting some things, and we get a better picture of that in the book of Acts. I think many of you know that Luke wrote not only Luke, but he wrote Acts. And so partly, probably the abruptness of Luke is because he more fully explains it in the first chapter of Acts. Let me read another portion of scripture with you, and then we're going to look at this question of why such joy. Here we read, it says in the first book in verse 1, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the book of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, again, we don't get the full explanation of what produced that joy, but we begin to see that there was an interaction here. The question was asked in verse 6, and I'm certain that wasn't all the questions that were asked of Jesus in that 40-day period. But it says in verse 6, and when they came together, they asked. And there must have been many questions that were asked in those 40 days as the disciples spent time with Jesus on occasion as he appeared to them. And I think it was out of that that they began to find the understanding that God began to use the Scriptures. Jesus began to use the Scriptures to open their eyes to see. And it was the things that they came to see in those 40 days that as Jesus left, this departure was much different than the first departure. The first time He was taken away to be crucified. They were getting it. Their eyes had been opened. They were beginning to see. And so what I want to do this morning is before we come to this table, just talk about two or three of those things that I suspect was what was producing this joy in the disciples. I hope it produces joy for you. The first one, I think, that caused their joy was the joy that Jesus had in being reunited with the Father. I think part of their joy was an expression of the joy that Jesus had about where he was going, what he was returning to. Um, it was a reunion with the Father that, that Jesus was lifted up in in the ascension. He was going back to where he had come from, to his Father's side. That's, that's huge. And, and the thing that makes it so significant is that we must understand that the severing of the Son from the Father was awful. It was horrific. And we sometimes think about it as not that big a deal, to be honest. We function there sometimes. We've heard it so many times that Jesus came, that we, we, we don't stop long enough to linger about what that really meant. There is a place in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53, a text that says, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. His coming was about being crushed. 
His coming was about it actually being the will of the Father to crush the Son in the sense that it was pleasing in one sense for the Father to crush the Son. That's, that's just almost unimaginable for us to understand and to comprehend. We need to think a lot about that. We need to linger there a lot. If you're going to have joy and this table produce joy, you must understand what it meant for Jesus to be severed from the side of the Father and how much He anticipated going back to that union that He had in the beginning. It was no small thing for them to come. One of the things that I say often, and you've heard me say, is there, the Trinity needed nothing outside of itself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit... One God and three persons, which we can't fully get our head around, but we need to try. But in that union, there was absolute perfection. There was nothing residing in that union that compelled that union to be broken up in the sense of Jesus coming. There was nothing outside of it that compelled it to to be broken. But what compelled it was what resided inside of that union, that perfect union. And what resided inside of that perfect union was a decision that was made. A decision between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That Jesus, the Son, would be severed from that union for a time. And would come out of that 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 needed nothing. Just because they chose to do that. And that severing was absolutely horrific. And we need to dwell on that. Now, one of the things we talked about here is that that the joy of the disciples in going was the joy that they knew Jesus was going to experience. Let Let me take you a few places in the book of John. If you turn with me to John chapter 14, just three different texts in John. Just just back a ways from Acts. Let me read these texts to you. These are the things that Jesus was telling the disciples before his crucifixion about that union that was to take place. He says this in verse chapter 14 and verse uh, 28 of John. It says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father for the father is greater than I am. Here again, he says, you, you would rejoice. If you, if you knew what it was for me to go back to the Father, you would rejoice in that. You would rejoice that I'm going back to the Father. Now, this was before the crucifixion. This made very little sense to them. No sense at all, really. Until after the resurrection. Then it started to come together. If you turn to John 16, and verse 28, Jesus says this, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And then he says, I am now leaving the world and going to the Father. Again, his, his prediction that he's going to ascend back to the Father. Again, I think it made very little sense to them then. But Jesus spoke many of these things so that later he could remind them of that. And then one more text in John chapter 17, in verse 5. This is an amazing Text. This is what Jesus says. And now, Father, this is in his, his, his uh, high priestly prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Glorify me in your own presence. He said, I've completed the work that was to be done. So glorify me in your presence. In other words, I'm going back. I'm going back to your presence. That was what Jesus meant here. A little later in that particular prayer, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The, the whole idea of Jesus going back to the Father, they were getting that. He was going back and they were joyful for that because it was coronation day. What that meant for Jesus was that it was coronation day. R.C. Sproul writes very carefully when he talks about the ascension of Christ. And he says, you've got to be careful or you'll, you'll make a blasphemous statement if you say this in the wrong spirit, really. But he thinks this is one of the highest acts of what Jesus did in the ascension. It, was, it, it capped it all. Now, it isn't that the rest of it wasn't important. It had to all come together, and so it's hard to pick one thing as more important than the other. But the ascension, the ascension was the coronation day. The ascension was the climax of it all, he would say, in that sense. Jesus was going back to where he came from, to the side of the Father, to be with the Father. Listen to what some texts say about all of that. Listen to the coronation day. Listen to how it's described. In the book of Acts chapter 2, just a chapter over, it says, Let all the house of Israel know that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Talking about coronation day. Coming back to the side of the Father. Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, listen to what it says there about this whole idea of coronation. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When does that happen? After the ascension. After Jesus goes back to the Father. It was coronation day for Jesus. It was the last declaration of the Father. Of all that had been accomplished. Of all that Jesus had done. And so part of the joy of, of these disciples was knowing the joy that Jesus had to go back to the Father. Now, why is that significant for us to get that? Why should that produce joy in us? Again, it shows what He left. We, we just think that's kind of old hat, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But we don't stop and we don't go back far enough to realize what that coming meant for Jesus, what it signifies for us. He left he left what he longed to go back to and did ultimately go back to in the ascension for us because he came to save sinners. He came. Now, that's one thing that should produce joy. Let, let me go on a couple of more and then we're going to come to the table. The second thing is the blessing that that going back signified to the church. I think what they understood was that that, that ascension, that final act there of going back now from where he had come, the final chapter, really, in one sense, of His coming. 
being seated again with the Father, brought great blessing to the church. It was a declaration of great blessing upon the church. Um, Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. They had some idea of this, I think, the disciples. Not, Not as fully as when Paul or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews wrote. But listen to what Hebrews says. Listen to the blessing that comes to us now. Because he went back, because of the ascension, because he's now at the right hand of the Father. It says this in verse 11. And every priest, this is talking about ministering at the temple and, and, uh, and giving sacrifice. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, when he had done it, what happened? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those that are being sanctified. That's a description of the ascension. That's a description of him going back to the Father. And what it contrasts is what it was before he did that. He was the true priest, the true high priest, because there were priests before him that pictured this, but it says there the priest stands. Look at the text. Every priest stands. Why do they stand? Why do they keep standing? Because to set down would signify that it was finished. And it was never finished. They offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice had not yet come. It was pointing to something else. And so when they would go and minister in the Holy of Holies, they never sat down. There was no place to sit as they went in once a year, signifying that it was never fully completed. It it was looking ahead to the completion of that. It goes on to say that they did it repeatedly. They stood and they repeatedly made those sacrifices again and again and again, pointing to something else. It was not finished. And then it says, but when Christ, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. The contrast of standing and sitting. Why did he sit down? Because it's finished. It's completed. Everything has been done to make atonement. It doesn't ever have to be offered again. It is sufficient. And that's what Jesus going back to the Father signified. What They, they must have had a sense of knowing that that, that that declared it. He's going to set back at the right hand of the Father because it's been finished. It's been completed. But something else also was happening, and they must have known this as well. He, he, in one sense, completes the atonement. It's finished. Never again will a sacrifice need to be made. That sacrifice was sufficient. It was declared sufficient because he sat at the right hand of the Father. But his work isn't fully finished, in one sense. Because the Scripture says something happens as he sits at the Father's side. Something occurs as he sits there. He doesn't just sit there quietly. But the scripture declares he sets there and he makes intercession. An ongoing thing that continues to happen as the son goes back to be seated at the father and experience the joy of being with the father. He is continually 
interceding and saying something. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. If you go back just a, a chapter there or two. Listen to what it says in verse 25. Beginning actually at verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, speaking of Christ, permanently because he continues forever. And then it says what happens as he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he is always lives to make intercession for them. He sat down. The atonement was complete. But he sits down at the right hand of the Father to continually make intercession for us. There's another place. Listen, listen to the scripture in Romans chapter 8. It says somewhat a similar thing. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead. And then it says, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Now, you would be right to say the atonement is finished. Jesus said it's finished. But in one sense, it goes on. And what goes on is the sense in which he is now at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all that the atonement applies to, for all that have looked to him, for all who trust him, for all who have chosen him to be their wrath bearer. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, in a sense, though God need not be reminded of anything, to remind the Father of the work. To continually declare to the Father that the work has been finished. So the ascension does this. It certifies that the satisfactory atonement was made. But it also inaugurates the eternal intercession of the work of Christ. And that eternal intercession of the work of Christ at the right hand of the Father speaks and guarantees to us A sympathetic father. A merciful, sympathetic father. And it it declares to us eternal access. Never, ever will we be denied access to the father if we're in Christ because he is now at the right hand of the father making intercession. He's not going to bring any charge against us. The one who died, the one who bore the wrath for us, the one who left that perfection that we can't comprehend. Now is he going to say, well, I did that, but no. When the Bible says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. No one successfully. Will Satan bring accusation? Yes. But can he do it successfully? No. Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you if you're in Christ. I hope that produces joy in your life. I hope it produces joy as you look at this table. He's right there reminding the Father that there is no condemnation to those that are in Him. Because he bore that condemnation. Do you see it? Do you see the picture that Scripture is painting? 
a continuing, ongoing intercession that guarantees to us access eternally to the Father. So their joy, I think, rested in the joy that Jesus had in going back to the Father. And as we understand the joy he had in going back, we understand what it was for him to leave, and that should produce joy, to to understand what it meant for him to come. That it was a big deal. It was nothing to take lightly. It's the heart of the gospel that God chose to come. Secondly, the blessing that that means to the church, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because everything that was needed for atonement had been made. And he also sits there to remind the Father that there is no condemnation now for those that he died for. There is no wrath that will come to them because he bore the wrath. You see the picture? That should create great joy in you. No matter what circumstance you bring into this sanctuary, no matter what hardship you bring in, no matter what difficulty weighs upon you, I hope that when you hear things like this, out of Scripture, that there is a sense that you can have joy in the midst of the brokenness. And, and that you know, when I say this table ought to produce joy, you know what that means. Even as I prepared this week, that strengthened my soul to be reminded of those things. I found joy in those things. And then there's a third thing that we didn't talk about and we won't talk about it much, but it says in the text that, uh, that the, the angels came after, after Jesus had ascended, that two men in white robes came. And they said that this Jesus will come back in the same way he left. So that produced joy in them. That he, wasn't, he was coming back again. That the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom and all of that, it wasn't finished all yet. He would return. All of that, I think, causes them to go. The, the scripture says that, that they will receive power and they will be witnesses what, what is so important about this table, if you don't know what it means for this table to produce joy, you will not be a witness for Christ. You will not declare it to anybody. That's one of the tragedies about Christianity. One of the misconceptions about Christianity is that people think it is a joyless experience. That sometimes it's seen as drudgery. And that should never be the case. That is not what Christianity should produce. Christianity should produce incredible joy. A joy that we can't help but share. A joy that gets doubled as we share it. Their joy, the disciples had in that ascension, was doubled as they were able to share that joy with the world. As they went out into the world, part of what strengthened them to share was the joy that was doubled as others experienced that joy. That's the way it ought to be. If, if you don't regularly experience joy, you're not going to share it. You're not going to export something that isn't precious to you. So my prayer is that the preciousness is here. That you understand it. That you know regularly what it means to be strengthened by the gospel. To be strengthened by what this table represents to you. To have a rock solidness that comes under you of knowing that the atonement is finished because Jesus has been seated. And not only seated, but he makes intercession. So that you always know you have access to the Father. I pray that your heart will be strengthened this morning. We're going to come to this table now. 
Some of you may be wondering, typically we come to the table the first Sunday of every month, and because of graduation and Mother's Day, we've moved it now to the third Sunday this week or this month. We'll again, on the first Sunday of next month, come back to the table again. So that's the rhythm of how we receive communion. If you're visiting this morning and wonder if you're able to receive communion, in the bulletin this morning is an insert, the communion invitation. We have open communion at Richland, which means you need not be a member of this fellowship to partake. You only need to be willing to live under that invitation. So we ask you to reflect upon it, to read it as the worship team comes, as we prepare our hearts to receive these elements. I'd like for those to come who are going to help us this morning. This represents to us the body of Christ. It was broken represents to us a Savior who was willing to come and enter into brokenness for us. I pray that you'll take the element this morning and hold it as worship team teaches us a new song that talks about the gospel and then we'll partake together. Exalted Son of Glory, humbly came down, wounded for the broken, bore the sinner's crown. the willing death you died you became our bread of life Jesus we hunger and thirst for you As we remember your sacrifice, we see the wounds from your hands and pierced Extravagant love for how great the Now all lives are yours.
try to imagine for a moment what it must have been like for those disciples when, when the dawning awareness came that this Jesus who they'd been with for some three years now was God. And to understand where that God came from. That's, that's what was producing joy. The fact that they were joyful about the joy he was having and going back to his father. They had to begin to comprehend what it meant to come. God help us. God help us to comprehend what it meant for our Savior to come. Take and eat. Comprehend with me. We 
fact, we just can't help but share something that has been joyful for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.